More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Today is a good day to speak out about sexual abuse. Every day is a good day to speak out about sexual abuse. And every time I hit record for this podcast, that's what I remind myself of because I think that we can't speak out enough about an atrocity that destroys people's lives. So that's why I'm here. And I want to thank you for joining me today on Survivor Sanctuary as we kick off this next episode. Well, before we dive in, I do want to give a content warning, a trigger warning, because we are going to be talking about, I mean, as we do in every episode, sexual abuse, but I'm going to be using words for sexual assault and the sexual abuse of young girls. And this is also sexual abuse related to school administrators. So just want to give you that warning that there are going to be some things said that could potentially bring up things for you. I mean, I know that pretty much when you tune into Survivor Sanctuary, you're kind of prepared for that. But I just did want to give a content warning because I want to be blunt about what happened in this case that I'm going to be discussing. So in today's episode, I want to talk about a sentence that was just handed down in an Indonesian court for a man who had sexually assaulted some of his students. He was the principal at an Islamic boarding school, and he was originally sentenced to life for sexually assaulting at least 13 of his female students, and they were between the ages of 11 and 14 when he sexually assaulted them between the years of 2016 and last year, 2021. And not only did he sexually assault at least 13 students, and we know if we follow sexual abuse at all, and we know how predators work, there's no way that with the man having a career as a principal in an all-girls school that there are only 13 students that he sexually assaulted. Because typically by the time a sexual predator especially if children gets caught, he typically has hundreds of victims. But what he was sentenced for recently in a court in Bandung, Indonesia, is sexually assaulting 13 of his students over five years. And there are reportedly nine babies at least born out of these sexual assaults. It's just a crazy case. And of course, it caught my attention because as a child, my parents were missionaries in Indonesia. And I was six years old when a man actually from the same town that this principal is from, Bandung, Indonesia, he is the one who sexually abused me as a six-year-old girl. So, of course, this story caught my attention, not only because of, you know, the similarities between my story. I mean, obviously, this was not a case of an Islamic school. I was part of a Baptist church, and I was sexually abused by a man in Bandung, Indonesia. But one of the things that kind of brings it home to me, it's in the same city, in the same part of the world, a man who's a native of Bandung, Indonesia. So, So, of course, this just brings up a lot of things for me, uh, considering my own story. So I've been following this for the last several months, and 
a couple of months ago, this man was sentenced to life in prison for the sexual assault of these at least 13 students and everything that he did to them and everything that has happened as a result. However, prosecutors appealed the life sentence conviction, arguing that this man deserved the death penalty for what he did to these girls. And just um, yesterday, as of the time that I'm recording this podcast, um, the court's ruling was overturned and he was sentenced to death. The court's website released a statement And I'm going to read it to you from the USA Today article that was posted online today. It says, what he had done had caused trauma and suffering to the victims and their parents. The defendant had tarnished the reputation of Islamic boarding schools. And that's the end of the quote. But um, they actually have sentenced him to death for his sexual assault of these girls. So a couple of things this has brought up for me and might bring up for you as a survivor of sexual abuse. And that is like, that's an insane sentence. Like he was sentenced to death. They didn't think life in prison was harsh enough for this man. And he is now receiving the death penalty for what he did to these girls. Now, my brother actually texted me this story. Um, I had been following it, but he's the first one that texted the story to me when it broke. And he said, you know, America needs to take a page out of the Indonesian court's rule book here and start having harsher convictions for sexual abusers of children. And I'm definitely inclined to agree. I feel like I could spend a ton of time on that, just that, unpacking that one sentence alone. Um, It is laughable in so many cases how sexual abuse is punished here in the United States, whether it be people who are uh, school employees or pastors or youth pastors or church employees. It seems that, you know, occasionally you'll see a sentence that you think, wow, that's, that's a harsh sentence. That's how it should be. And then sometimes you see people just getting a slap on the wrist. You know, they're, they're getting a few months or a few years in prison. And it's like, you know, lives are destroyed. Lives are never going to be the same. People are going to be living with the consequences of having been sexual abused for the rest of their lives. Consequences that really should be on the perpetrator because they're the ones that do it. But instead, you know, sexual abuse, I feel like is just one of the examples. I know that there are more. Sexual abuse is one of those crimes where it's it's perpetrated by a person who does not have to live out the consequences in most cases. It's the person who is the victim of the crime that has to live out the consequences of this choice to commit a crime. So we do want to see harsher sentences. And so often, especially here in the United States, we don't see that. Now, I'm not, I just want to interject this here. This is not me arguing that the death penalty is what we need to institute here in the United States for sexual abusers of children. Although I will say that it's kind of like a serial killer. People who are sexual predators, especially if children, are people who are going around and essentially murdering people's souls. And I think that there was a meme once that was floating around online where it was like a chalk outline of a body and someone was quoted as saying, sexual abuse is a murder of souls. It's like a person's a serial killer, but it's the only killing where you're left alive. You know, it's the things 
inside of you, so many things that get destroyed. And unfortunately, in most cases, it doesn't have the courtesy of going ahead and killing you so you don't have to actually be physically alive to deal with all of it. Um, We experience sexual abuse, and then we get to carry the burden of sexual abuse with us for often the remainder of our lives. It just changes things. Trauma changes things. You are never going to go back to who you were before you experienced this kind of trauma. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of pushback from the super positive crowd. And I would say the crowd that has never been sexually abused. Um, there's a lot of pushback like, oh, don't be so negative. You know, don't let this define you. Refuse to be a victim, yada, yada, yada. I've heard it all. And I understand the spirit in which it is said. I, I understand what people mean when they say things like that. But what people who say things like that don't understand often is that living with trauma is not something that you just overcome and you go back to the way that you would have been without it. That's something that you're going to bear the scars of for the rest of your life. Yes, there's healing. Yay, there's healing. I'm glad to report that there's so much healing to be had and you can live a flourishing and fruitful and wonderful life after sexual abuse when you choose to work really hard at it. Um, I'm not sure that it just ever happens naturally for people that somebody can just experience that and then, oh, well, I don't, you know, it's just sexually abused or sexually assaulted as a child. And it just doesn't affect me at all as an adult. I don't think that that's true for the vast majority of sexual abuse victims. So while I am definitely an advocate for healing, I'm definitely an advocate for people finding their voice and taking back their power and overcoming. I'm I'm all about those stories. Overcoming is amazing and I love it, but I'm just going to stick to my guns as a survivor of sexual abuse who has worked for years on healing. There are some aspects of abuse and some scars that you carry with you for the rest of your life or that you carry with you indefinitely. We are physically living out this life sentence that belongs to the predator who sexually assaulted us and sexually abused us. Um, The predators who hunted us down and made a sport to gratify themselves, um, made a sport of our bodies and our souls and our spirits. Like that's sexual abuse in a nutshell. So I could spend all day talking about how punishments need to be harsher for perpetrators of sexual abuse, especially against children. And I don't want to minimize the sexual assault of adults, people over 18. I don't want to minimize that at all. And that's not my intent. Um, But the reason I say, especially when you're a child is because that's the time when your brain is still forming. Um, your your brain is still learning how to exist as a human being and to teach you everything you need to know about life. And it seriously alters your ability to develop normally, mentally and emotionally, spiritually, and, and even physically. In so many ways, it just affects us. So when people say that sexual abuse is a life sentence, while I can understand the pushback, I push back against the pushback and say, you know what? It's honestly the truth. Even if there's healing, there are always going to be scars. You know, you're not going to, after trauma, just go back to being the way that you were before. Like, oh, once I'm healed and once I go to like 47 sessions of therapy, I'm going to be a person who never experienced sexual abuse. That's not how it works. It's never going to happen. So I think that it doesn't do anybody a service to tell them that sexual abuse is not a life sentence because I think that for the vast majority of victims, it is. And we end up serving that life sentence while so many of our perpetrators 
just go on with their merry lives. And so that's why I think, you know, I, I might not <laughs> go with my brother's assessment here, like, hey, hey, America, let's take a page out of Indonesia's book and let's sentence child sexual abusers to death. But honestly, I think something needs to be done so that we have more perpetrators who are being sent to prison for long periods of time, not only for justice for their victims, but to protect future victims because we know that predators don't stop. But rather than talking about harsher punishments for perpetrators of child sexual abuse, I want to talk about something else that this article and this news story has brought up for me. I already mentioned this story happened in Indonesia. And because that's where my abuser is from, from the same city, the same town, he lived there when I was a child, he lives there to this day. He's still allowed to work with children in the church, put on puppet shows for them and be a part of gatherings that include children, even though, you know, he's confessed to sexually abusing multiple little girls. And again, we know that predators don't stop. So my story, like the similarities of my story and this principle in Bandung, Indonesia, the principle of an Islamic boarding school, like the similarities kind of end there. I think that this man is attracted to and preys upon girls who are older in age than my perpetrator did. And one of the stark differences here is that this principal actually was convicted of the crime of sexual abuse. And the man who perpetrated against me and other girls that we know of, and many, many other girls that I firmly believe he has sexually abused since he was probably a young teen, if not younger than that. I don't have evidence, I don't have proof that he's sexually abused dozens and dozens of girls, but it's something that everything I've learned about perpetrators of sexual abuse and everything I know of the man who abused me tells me that it is highly, highly likely that he's had many, many victims over the years. But that's where those similarities end, because the man who perpetrated sexual abuse against me in Bandung, Indonesia, was never convicted. He had the embarrassment of losing face and having to stand up in front of the church and repent of having committed a sin. I don't think he had to stand up and say, hey, I sexually abused little girls. Um, but it was eventually revealed to the church that that's what he had done. And so, yes, he had to deal with that embarrassment, but he's still married, uh, still enjoying his two kids, and still enjoying being a big part of the church where he sexually abused me and where he is now in a leadership position. But this story about this principal who sexually assaulted his students um, has brought up something else, like a layer of sexual abuse that I think so many of us deal with, especially when it comes to reporting our abuser. And it's a deep sense of guilt may not be exactly the right word I, I know that a lot of us experience guilt as survivors, but I think it's more of a fear in my case anyway. And my fear in coming forward, even when I felt like it was very, very necessary for me to come forward with the story of what had happened to me, uh, because I feared that my perpetrator was abusing other girls. And I was seeing pictures of him online as a leader in the church, as someone who's very trusted. I was seeing pictures online of this man 
doing puppet shows for kids. And there was, there was just a genuine fear, um, and a realization. I think it took me a long time to come to that realization, but once I got there, it was just like this burning in my heart that would not go away. Like I knew that he had continued to abuse. I knew I had not been his first victim and I knew, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that I had not been his last victim. And once I realized that, I knew that I had to report, but I dealt with a very real fear. You can call it guilt, and that's definitely a part of it, but this fear that by reporting my perpetrator, I was going to be putting him in danger, and I actually was scared of putting his life in danger because in this part of the world, in Bandung, Indonesia, things work very differently than they do in our corner of the world. And while, you know, I can applaud harsh sentences for those who sexually abuse children, I mean, I can applaud that, but at the same time, there's a very real fear that coming forward and reporting could potentially cost someone their life. And in my case, that didn't happen, but it was something that I was scared of. I was scared that if word got out, that this man had sexually abused little children, that, you know, there are people in that town, a mob who could be like, hey, we're not going to let this happen and could physically assault him and possibly even kill him. Um, There have been other cases in Indonesia where people who were perpetrating against children were badly beaten and worse um, when these groups of people found out that someone had sexually abused kids. And I had read some of these stories online and in the news, and I was afraid, you know, if I report this, if word gets out, is this man going to be physically hurt because I'm telling on him? Is his family going to have to suffer because I'm telling on him? Are his children going to suffer? Is his wife going to suffer? It's like, this is a layer of sexual abuse that I don't think we talk about that much, but that's very real for so many survivors of sexual abuse, especially survivors who are trying to decide whether or not they want to report. And for me, I realized that I had to report because I had to stop him and do whatever I could to make sure that he didn't abuse anyone else. And when the church didn't respond and they were essentially doing nothing, I had to look into other avenues. And so I actually sent emails and and made some calls to child protection agencies in Indonesia to just let them know, hey, this happened to me 30 years ago. However, this man still works with children and I'm, you know, I'm living in fear that he's going to harm someone else. And I knew that by going to those agencies, um, the chance that some people not involved in the church would find out about this was higher. And it scared me. And I actually did have a very real sense of guilt and of fear. Like, what if I am responsible for something happening to this man? I knew that there really wasn't a chance of him, you know, being arrested by Indonesian authorities or tried for what had happened 30 years ago because their statute of limitations is insanely short. Um, We're talking months. And so I didn't think that I was going to accidentally get him sentenced to life in prison or anything like that. But I was afraid that if word got out that people could take matters into their own hands, as I'd read in many stories, and could physically harm him or his family. I was afraid. Um, And I felt a deep sense of guilt. Not just for the fact that he could be hurt, but a very deep sense of guilt for bringing emotional pain upon his family. 
I wish that I could tie that up in a nice, neat bow and say that I came to a resolution and, you know, I worked through all of this and I just came to this conclusion that, you know, I had to report and I never felt that guilt or that fear ever again. It's not true. And in fact, reading this story about this Indonesian um, Islamic school principal who was just sentenced to death kind of brought all those feelings back up for me. And I know I'm not the only one. There is an incredible sense of guilt so often with survivors when we come forward and tell our stories. I recall having feelings of like not being worthy, like an unworthiness to report what had happened to me. I remember thinking like, I don't have any right to mess up this guy's life. And I thought that for many years, I had almost like um, a very sadly misplaced sense of compassion and even what I thought was empathy for my perpetrator. I used to think, oh my goodness, I'm sure that he feels terrible about what he did to me. I'm sure that, you know, this random thing that happened between us several times, you know, is something that he deeply regrets or, you know, just feels shame over. And I always felt sorry for my perpetrator. And that's kind of how I went through life. And I realize now that a part of me feeling sorry for my perpetrator was sort of my mind's way of making him out to be the person who needed the pity and not me and kind of as keeping myself from feeling like a victim, you know, giving myself control in the situation. And I didn't do that consciously, but I think subconsciously that's kind of how I dealt with the shame and that sense of helplessness that you feel when you're victimized. And a lot of us struggle with being victims or admitting that we were victimized. And so we sort of create these elaborate stories around that, like in my mind, I, oh, it could have been so much worse. In my mind, you know, my perpetrator, I, I'm sure that was just this random thing that happened and never crossed my mind that it might have been deeper than that. And I think that that's because it was part of the story that I built in my mind. Like, I'm sure he didn't mean to abuse me. I'm sure that he feels so embarrassed and ashamed that this ever happened. And I will never tell anyone. I adamantly said I would never tell anyone and believed that wholeheartedly uh, because I didn't think I had the right to ruin his life or to hurt his family. So there is this massive sense of guilt just for turning somebody in. And and I knew like there weren't going to be legal repercussions because in Indonesia, as I said, the statute of limitations is very short. So I knew that he wasn't going to be dealing with that. And the sense of guilt that I felt when there was no chance he was going to have to get arrested or go to prison, like was insane. So imagine being a young girl who has been sexually assaulted by her principal uh, for several years and thinking about like, should I tell, you know, should I turn him in? Should I go to the police? Should I go to my parents? Um, Imagine knowing that your government And your judicial system can sentence somebody to death for what they've done to you. And imagine kind of carrying that guilt on your shoulders. It's not something that we should carry as survivors of sexual abuse. But it would be naive of me to sit here and say that it's not something that you deal with as a survivor of sexual abuse because it is. And I want to state very clearly right now Um, If you're in one of the beginning phases of dealing with your sexual abuse, maybe you haven't spoken out yet. Maybe you haven't told. I want to be a thousand percent clear that there is zero guilt 
that you need to carry on your shoulders. Absolutely none of the guilt for what your perpetrator has done or what your perpetrator may have to experience as a consequence of what they've done. None of that guilt is yours to carry. But I want to acknowledge that because of what sexual abuse does to our minds, because of the way it warps the way that we see ourselves, the way that it warps our sense of self-worth and self-esteem. I want to acknowledge that guilt is one of the emotions, one of the things you're going to feel, and one of the things that you're going to have to sort of unwrap, unpack, and work through in this process. I wish that it weren't. I wish that none of us felt guilty when turning in our perpetrators, but I think that for the vast majority of us, we have a sense of guilt. And when a perpetrator is sentenced for what they've done to us, if we haven't yet worked through that, it's kind of a normal emotion to experience, that feeling of guilt, like, what have I done? Um, I can't imagine, you know, the girls who were sexually assaulted by this principal and how they feel, you know, we reported and we came forward and now this man is going to die as a result. His family is going to lose him as a result of us speaking out. Now, again, none of that guilt belongs on the victim's shoulders, but I want to acknowledge that this is a piece of the puzzle. This is something that came up for me years removed from turning in my perpetrator, but it brought back all of those feelings of, oh my goodness, what have I done or what could I potentially do by telling, by speaking up, by turning him in? And I just want to remind you, I did an episode quite a long time ago, I think that when I first started the podcast, um, called Sexual Abuse is a Liar. There are so many lies that sexual abuse whispers in our ears, lies about our worthiness, lies about our culpability, lies about our responsibility, lies about our guilt. Sexual abuse is a liar. And those lies are going to be fighting for space in your head, especially when you first begin to think about reporting the person who sexually abused you especially if that person is somebody who is respected, especially if that person is somebody that others look up to. Um, There are so many lies that we kind of have to fight against and build up defenses to. And obviously, I wish that weren't the case. I wish we all believed like, hey, um, I'm turning in my perpetrator because I don't want him to sexually assault anybody else. I don't want him to ruin anybody else's life. I don't want him to victimize any more children. And it's not my fault if he goes to prison for what he has done or for what she has done. I'm not responsible. Like, I wish that's how everybody felt. Unfortunately, when you've dealt with sexual abuse and everything that entails and you have this warped sense of self, and all these lies are whispering in your ear, it's very difficult to get to that point where you're just like, hey, um, this person is not serving a life sentence because of me. This person is serving a life sentence because of them. And I would say that the same thing is the case with this Indonesian principal and his victims. He's not in prison because his victims did something wrong by telling on him. He's in prison and facing the death penalty because he chose to sexually assault little children, 11 to 14-year-old girls, at least 13 of them. 
And again, I'm sure it's many, many, many more people than that. But this man is facing the death penalty, not because he was told on. He's facing the death penalty because he did something that's worthy of the death penalty. I did kind of say that out loud, so I I need to acknowledge that that's in my brain. Um, Not that I think that everybody who commits sexual abuse needs to be put to death. However, I am 100% for reform where the sentencing of child sexual abusers is concerned. Um, We've got people, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but I'm going to mention it again. We have people who are getting slapped on the wrist, people who are getting probation, people who are getting these tiny little itsy-bitsy sentences, and then some people who are being sentenced what I feel is appropriately, but there are so many cases where the punishment I don't feel fits the crime. So while no, I don't think that everybody deserves a death sentence. I think that it's important for people who are sentencing perpetrators of child sexual abuse to understand the lifelong sentence that victims of child sexual abuse are serving and what it does to people, the lives that it destroys, and the ridiculousness of some of the lenient sentences that we're seeing when we're even seeing sentences at all, because it's so difficult to even get a perpetrator to the point where they're arrested and then to get to the point where they are actually tried in court for their crimes. I'll go back to sexual abusers of children are serial killers, basically who leave their victims alive to deal with all of the consequences of that soul murder, if you will. So yeah, I am for harsher punishments. I'm right there. I too am concerned about the sentencing guidelines for child pornography, child sexual abuse. I'm concerned when it's more important to lawmakers that we make sure that those who download and view child pornography aren't sentenced to too many years in prison, rather than being concerned about the fact that the vast majority of people who are perpetrating sexual abuse against children are never caught. I would say most people who murder somebody get caught. I sit and watch ID, um, you know, investigation discovery and HLN, and I watch forensic files and I watch shows about people who commit heinous crimes. And I'm always sitting there thinking like, these people are so dumb. Why does everybody think they're not going to get caught when they murder someone? Who sits and plans a murder and actually believes, is delusional enough to believe that they're going to get away with it? Yes, I realize that people get away with murder. It's something that happens. But closing in on 70% of the time, if you murder somebody, you're getting caught, you're going to prison. So I don't like those odds, you know, but you watch HLN or you watch ID and you see these shows about murders and you're just like, you know, you're going to leave a hair behind. You know, you're going to leave a footprint. You know, there's a security camera somewhere, you moron, because everywhere in the world has security cameras now. You're going to get caught. You're not getting away with this. The vast majority of the time, people do not get away with murder. The same cannot be said for child sexual abuse, because the vast majority of the time, people who sexually abuse abuse and assault children get away with it. They're never told on, first of all, or if they're told on, they're never arrested, or if they are arrested, they're never prosecuted, and if they are prosecuted, they're not convicted. The vast majority of the time, someone who perpetrates child sexual abuse will get away with it. So it does concern me when a judge or a lawmaker or policymaker is concerned about sentences for those who use and download child sex abuse material, 
because that's what child pornography is, child sex abuse material, um, they're concerned with those sentences being too harsh, with those sentences being too long. When the way that I see it as somebody who knows quite a bit about sexual abuse and experienced sexual abuse at the hands of a person who was well-respected and trusted and who was living a double life, what concerns me is the fact that people who use child sex abuse material, people who view what is commonly known as child pornography are people who are very, very, very likely to perpetrate against actual living and breathing humans. And when somebody is willing to sexually abuse a child, when somebody desires to find children to use for sexual gratification, those people are dangerous. They are a danger to society. They are soul murderers, serial killers of souls, roaming around and looking for lives to destroy. And the vast majority of the time, they're not caught. So no, I don't sit around and think that we need more lenient punishments for people who download child sex abuse materials. If you think we need more lenient sentences for people who smoke weed in places that it's illegal, for people who use drugs, for people who are caught possessing drugs, if you want to argue that the, we need sentencing reform in those cases, I'm I, I'm with you. You know, I'll have that conversation. I'll probably agree with a lot of what you're saying. I'm all for it. Let's stop arresting people because we caught them with weed or arresting people because we caught them with drug paraphernalia. And how about we start arresting people who are out sexually assaulting children? And that includes people who are downloading child sex abuse material on the internet. It does. And if a sentence for that person seems harsh, like, oh, we caught him with child sex abuse material, um, but this person isn't perpetrating against a living, breathing human being. Well, first of all, yes, they are, because a child has to be sexually assaulted in order to create child sex abuse material for you to download from the internet. So you are promoting the sexual abuse of children when you download those images. And so so no, I, I will listen to arguments like, oh, you know, we caught somebody with this, you know, p- these pictures or these images on their computer. And really, are we going to harshly punish them just for these wee little images? Yes, because first of all, children have to be abused to create those images. And you are adding to the demand for those images, which adds to the demand for child sexual abuse to take place. Second, you are feeding a depraved desire that when fed is more than likely going to lead to you perpetrating against living, breathing children because pictures and videos from the internet are not gonna be enough for you anymore. So while we have lawmakers here in the United States crying about people getting harsh sentences for downloading child porn, um, in Indonesia, we have people being sentenced to death for sexually assaulting children. Again, not saying that sentencing everybody to death is the answer. (laughs) Like, that's not what I'm advocating for here. But I do believe that we need to take a good, long, hard look at our insane sentencing guidelines that have one judge giving somebody three months in prison, one judge giving somebody 30 years in prison, another maybe giving somebody probation. Like, we need change. And while I'm not an advocate of sentencing everybody to death who sexually abuses children, although honestly, I think that a sentence like that speaks volumes about the understanding of what a heinous crime the sexual abuse of children is. 
still not advocating for that, but saying we definitely need change. We need in the United States and in other developed nations, a greater understanding of the devastation of sexual abuse and what it actually means for its victims. We need people to understand the life sentence that sexual abuse so often is for victims so that they can better understand what kind of punishment fits that crime. And one of the reasons it's important is to take that sense of guilt off the shoulders of victims of sexual abuse. The guilt that we so often feel, the guilt that I felt in turning in my perpetrator, which wasn't in the United States, and there was literally no chance he was going to get arrested in Indonesia for what he had done. Um, He wasn't going to get arrested for fondling little girls 30 years ago, and I knew that, but there was still this incredible sense of guilt for turning him in, guilt that I was somehow ruining his life, that I was causing him problems, that I was causing problems for his family, his wife, his kids, his church, his sister and and his nieces and nephews, like this incredible sense of guilt. And I think that when we begin to take sexual abuse more seriously in our court system, more seriously when it comes to sentencing, where you don't have these judges who for whatever reason are like, well, we don't want to ruin this man's life. He's been a pillar of the community and it would just be a shame to let all the good he's done fall by the wayside and just let this one little thing define his life. When you have people like that, It's no wonder that victims of sexual abuse are struggling with a sense of guilt. If those tasked with the responsibility of punishing perpetrators of child sexual abuse can't decide that their crimes are heinous enough to warrant jail time, then how can we expect the child victims of sexual abuse to understand that what's happening to them is heinous and needs to be reported? There's a disconnect there. It, it, something is skewed and something is screwed up. So while I'm not advocating that we become Indonesia and sentence child sexual abusers to death, I will applaud a justice system that says, no, this sentence is not good enough. It's not enough that he spend life in prison. He, he needs something worse than that because what he has done is so horrible. If I sound worked up, it's because I'm a little bit worked up by this whole thing. Um, Yeah. So when I said that this brought up a lot of stuff for me, this story that my brother texted to me, yeah, it brought up a lot of stuff. And it just brought up that reminder of like the guilt that we have as survivors and how can we not have guilt when like, how can you expect a survivor to understand the gravity of what has happened to them when our justice system and and those who have created it and our policymakers and lawmakers, when they themselves don't understand it, um, when it's not important enough to advocate for stronger punishments for people who would perpetrate or contribute to the sexual abuse of children. We need some change there. And in closing, a reminder to you that if you have turned in your perpetrator, if you are one of the people who spoke up and you told, it may be common to feel guilt from that, but the guilt is not yours to bear. Not one tiny speck of it, not a single atom of that guilt is yours. It is all on the person who decided to violate the innocence of a child for their own sexual gratification. So don't believe that lie that you carry any of the guilt for that. Instead, believe when you choose to speak up that so often what you're doing is protecting other people, other children 
from going through what you have gone through. I'd love to hear, as always, what you think, so let me know. You can weigh in on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. Just search Survivor Sanctuary Podcast on Facebook. Answer the multiple choice question that's very easy to answer. And if you answer it correctly, I will add you to the group. And you can post and read posts and let me know your thoughts on today's episode. I'll catch you back here next time on Survivor Sanctuary. See you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.